Welcome everybody, my name is Mikal Nasrani and this is Islam for Christians, episode 39, Islamic History, circa 616, An Inconvenient Message, The Satanic Verses. Clever People Clever people as a group, and this is particularly true of lawyers, business people, or anyone who makes a living by negotiating. They're experts at exploiting weaknesses. Sometimes these exploited weaknesses are vices and very obvious ones, say someone with a big mouth and a substance abuse problem. Uh, sometimes people can be thrown into irrationality by touching a nerve, triggering cognitive dissonance or anger or aggression or a deep-seated fear, or all of them. Now, many of these things are usually considered to be negative vices, fear, anger, aggression. I think that was Yoda's trifecta in the original Star Wars. But you know when you found someone who is really clever, a whole different level of clever? The most clever people can take normally positive attributes and turn those against someone. These people can take someone's natural empathy, for example or a desire to help the less fortunate, or guilt about a historical wrong, and turn that into an everlasting, ever-shaming, ever-feasting, blood-sucking gravy train. I won't name any specific entities, but there are countless organizations dedicated to this classic grift. Perhaps you've run into one. These people are clever, very clever. And you know who else is a master of this technique? That would be Satan. You give him an inch and he will carve out the Grand Canyon. You give him any sympathy and he'll spin that good into evil. And that brings us to Muhammad's situation in history. Now, Muhammad is not the type of person who seeks strife. He's not the type of person who is looking for an edge on anybody. He was the type of businessman who could count on repeat business because you knew he was working for a mutually beneficial transaction. But not everyone is this way. I don't know what creates difficult people, but they're present in all phases of life, as I'm sure everyone knows. From the very beginning, think back to being a kid. I can just imagine Muhammad in a schoolyard football game at the time, or baseball, or cricket, or soccer, or whatever you may have played in school. Just think about that. Were you ever enjoying the game, and then there's a close call about a penalty or whatever, and one or more guys just go crazy? They scream and yell and dig in, spending the next 15 minutes arguing, completely missing the big picture here, that this game is supposed to be fun. The argument doesn't end until the teacher calls everyone in because recess is over already. Only if you have a reasonable, respected kid around preferably a large one, to step in, um, that's the only chance you'll have any opportunity to actually enjoy the game being played after this. And, and this is frustrating to reasonable people. And folks like Muhammad live their lives trying to maneuver around the irrational, keeping the peace and trying to make some room for a world that is worth living in. He's a peacemaker. That's a good thing, because he's a good person. And in this, 
just like the grifters I mentioned earlier, Satan sees an opening. Muhammad saw the strife his ministry was causing. He saw the pain. Yes, he was aware of the good as well. And of course, he didn't really have much of a choice in the matter. But someone with Muhammad's personality is going to have a really hard time with all this strife and conflict. So he prays for an end to the conflict, a revelation that would bring peace among his religious community and his wider community in Mecca. And stunningly, he actually gets it. It comes. It's recorded at the beginning of Sora 53. Um, for this one, I'm going to use the Yusuf Ali translation. By the star, when it goes down, your companion is neither astray nor being misled, nor does he say this of his own desire. It is no less than inspiration sent down to him. He was taught by one mighty in power, endued with wisdom, for he appeared in stately form. While he was in the highest part of the horizon, then he approached and came closer, and was at a distance of but two bow lengths, or even nearer. So did God convey the inspiration to his servant, conveyed what he meant to convey. The prophet's mind and heart in no way falsified that which he saw. Will ye then dispute with him concerning what he saw? For indeed, he saw him at a second descent, near the lote tree, beyond which none may pass, near its garden of the abode. Behold, the lote tree was shrouded in mystery unspeakable. His sight never swerved, nor did it go wrong. For truly he did he see of the signs of his Lord the greatest. Have you seen, this is the important part, <laughs> have you seen Lot and Uzzah? and another, the third goddess, Manat. So that was the Quran, uh, Surah 53, verses 1 to 20. Now, I want to read 19 and 20 one more time, because this is, this is important. That's what a lot of this episode revolves around. Have you seen Lot and Uzzah, and another, the third goddess, Manat? Um, I think this is being contrasted to him seeing the real God that actually exists. And I think the implication here is that these three pagan gods, Lot and Uzzah and Manat, don't actually exist. Um, so just kind of keep those two verses in mind. Uh, the message here is basically, you know, from this uh, verses one to 20, don't shoot the messenger. It's God's message. He's just telling the people what he is seeing and hearing. It's an elegant message for sure. Uh, here's what the Arabic sounds like. Uh, credit to Saad al-Ghamdi for this.
So there you go. Pretty poetic, great stuff. Um, I'm sure people were happy to hear it, <laughs> at least some, because there's still a problem here. This verse, as I read you in 19 and 20, uh, the verses 19 and 20 earlier, they're still denying the pagan gods. Um, at least it was a problem for Meccan society at the time. This is not going to solve anything. This does not fix the conflict. This does not create harmony because the message is still the same. But then, almost instinctively, Muhammad makes a very well-intentioned error. Now, just as a quick preamble here before I get into this, the historicity of this event is hotly contested. I will get into that a little later. It was present in some extremely early sources. It is rejected by mainstream Islamic scholars and accepted by many secular scholars. I'm just telling the story in question right now. Uh, we can dig into the controversy later. That said, at this point, Muhammad allegedly commits a grand error. He adds to the message, inserting the line, these are the exalted Garanik, whose intercession is hoped for. Or, these are exalted females whose intercession is to be desired. Um, the Arabic sounds like this. I'll get that in a set. Apologies for how awful this sounds. This is not Quranic, so there's no public domain rec recitation of it, or at least that I've found. But this is the Arabic version of this message that was supposedly inserted to create harmony in Mecca. Tilk al-Garanik al-Ula wa'ina shafa'ata huna la-Torza. Now, I'm just awful at pronouncing Arabic, but for those listening closely, yes, that does rhyme with the first 20 lines of the surah as well. It fits right in. It's the same style, similar meter, similar length. Again, just fits right in there, almost like a Freudian slip. Now, the Quraysh, you know, the Meccans were here thrilled to hear this because you know, they were pagans and Muhammad just validated their gods. Um, so basically you had the old order of, oh, okay, here's this new God, throw them in with all the other gods. Our gods are still real. You know, um, it at least approved of these gods as intermediaries between the humans and the divine and Muhammad's God. The exalted females he was referring to were Meccan goddesses. 
And obviously those names pulled some weight at the time. Upon hearing this, it seemed all problems were solved. So now the Muslims could be just like everyone else in Mecca, just worship their God as the primary among a pantheon of other existing gods. As the story goes, all the pagans immediately began to pray with Muhammad at the Kaaba in the Muslim style and after invoking pagan gods. So everyone was happy. Of course, there was one being that would be unhappy and would probably have a major problem with this. That would be God, the real God. Now, Muhammad was likely not aware of any of this at the time, of what was going on around him, if this part happened at all. That's a very big if. But let's pretend that it did. Let's pretend the pagans heard that extra bit and were super emotional about it. And they were so overcome that they began to pray like Muslims. Can you imagine the sight of pagans doing Muslim ritual prayers at the Kaaba and in service of pagan deities? How offensive would that be? This is like a voodoo priest pouring chicken blood into the communion wine. So you can imagine that God is angry, like Old Testament angry. God did not say those words. So then the question becomes, who did? Well, according to the story, the author is usually considered to be Satan. And that's where we get the term for this event, the satanic verses. That may be a pejorative or a derisive term, maybe, but it's the only proper noun I know of for this event, for these words. So it'll just have to do. If someone knows a better term, just let me know. I'd love to hear it. So the satanic verses. You may have heard the term before. It was coined by a 19th century Orientalist and one that was not particularly friendly to Islam. Again, that's why it may be a pejorative term. But that's probably not where you actually heard the term satanic verses the first time, if you've heard it at all. You probably heard it as the title of Salman Rushdie's famous book, The Satanic Verses. It's the one that made the Ayatollah of Iran basically put out a hit on Salman Rushdie in 1989. Now, a long time ago, I was drawn by the forbidden nature of this book. Really nothing else. I was just like, oh, okay, I'm not supposed to read this. I'd better read it. So I tried to read Rushdie's novel, but... It wasn't that interesting to me. I got through about two chapters. I was already bored with the story and wondering why anyone would care about this. Um, I think the whole first chapter was some magical scene with two guys falling from the sky. I, I never did get to the blasphemy or where the problem was. Um, I was pretty young at the time, and the novel was clearly way over my head. I was just a teenager, after all. But when it came out, as I understand it, it was a big deal. The satanic verses were used as a literary device, as I understand it. Whenever I hear about this controversy, nothing from the book is ever quoted, which is kind of weird, right? So it may just be something you can only understand if you actually read the whole book. And it's a very, very long book. It takes a commitment. Okay, so... Back to the author of these verses, or 
really isn't it just one verse? Um, as some have pointed out, the term shaitan in Arabic doesn't necessarily mean the Satan, or Iblis as the Muslims call him. It could just be a jinn, invisible forces who whisper and meddle in the world of humans. Regardless, if this did indeed did happen, you know, I think it's safe to say Satan was the acting force, whether or not he was actually saying it or causing something else to say it. Um, you know, regardless of who did the actual whispering. Mainstream Islam doesn't really accept this story, but if it did, it would be very similar to Jesus' tests with Satan in the desert. The only difference is the devil slipped one past Muhammad, but did he really? The story doesn't actually play out with Satan corrupting anything. Satan doesn't win. So let's get to that part, to this story, as it appears in the early Islamic histories. Gabriel comes to Muhammad and says, Oh Muhammad, what have you done? You have recited to the people something which I have not brought you from God, and you have spoken what he did not say to you. Now, Muhammad doesn't argue. He doesn't defend himself. He's quickly full of dread and fear, as you would expect. Satan had exploited a weakness, that weakness being Muhammad's desire for peace. And, according to the original story, God responds, and with a verse that is in the actual Quran, Surah 22, verse 52. Never did we send a messenger or a prophet before thee, but when he framed a desire, Satan threw some vanity into his desire. But Allah will cancel anything that Satan throws in, and Allah will confirm and establish his signs, for Allah is full of knowledge and wisdom. Now, that's controversial, and for a very good reason. I'll get to more of that later. Um, one major thing is that the historical timing appears to be off in this story. But in this original story, Muhammad immediately recants and God makes everything right, undoing what Satan had done. Then it goes on to talk about the Muslims in Abyssinia who briefly came back after hearing about all of this. That's the end of the original story, as presented in the earliest sources. Okay, so. Why is this such a big deal? Why is this whole story so controversial? Well, here's the case for why this is theologically unacceptable and thus controversial. Actually, I give a reason why it's unacceptable and why it's acceptable from a view of Islamic, Islamic theology. First, why it's unacceptable. It undermines the role of Muhammad as the pure messenger. In the view of some, any question that Muhammad is anything but perfect taints the perfect vessel of the Quranic revelation. So if we can't believe the messenger, how can we believe the Quran? This line of thinking has Greek and Christian influence written all over it. Uh, it's similar to the insistence on the purity of Mary. After all, what if Mary really wasn't a virgin? What if she was lying? as the vessel for the word of God that undermines the entire religion. So from that point of view, this is a very, very big deal. Now, alternately, here's the argument for why it's acceptable, 
for why it's not a big deal at all. Does it really matter that Muhammad made an understandable error? It clearly didn't bother the earliest Muslims that this story was floating around. They converted in massive numbers even with it. That is, of course, if many even knew about it. But the Muslims writing the early histories clearly believed this tale, and it's tucked into a larger story with little fanfare. Um, like if you actually read the, the early history itself, it's, it's almost a throwaway. There's really no effort to highlight this as a significant or important thing. And th this event doesn't make Muhammad any less honest. Actually, from a certain point of view, it might make him more honest. Who but an honest man would admit to something like that so readily? He is just a prophet, not the son of God. There's only one Islamic prophet born of a virgin, and that would be Isa, or Jesus. And after the verses, God made things right anyway, and it never happened again, which is probably why the early historians regarded it as a small, almost throwaway story. It's not like it's theologically relevant in any way. Those extra words never made it into any version of the Quran. It's a historical footnote. And it doesn't taint Muhammad's credibility as a messenger either. After all, it, it was Satan, not Muhammad, who said those words. Even in this supposed anti-Islam story, Muhammad comes off as a very sincere person. Now, for those who are not invested in Islamic theology, the question you're probably asking is, I don't care about the theological implications. I want to know, are these verses real? Did it happen? From a historical standpoint, can this be believed? Um, I'll give you the strongest case for each side here. All right. First, the case for it being real, that this actually did happen as presented in the historical source. There are two reasons traditional secular historians believe this to be true. One, it's in the early sources. And two, it's embarrassing. Now, the first one is obvious. It's in the earliest histories of Islam collected by Muslim scholars. Now, how did it get there? The not real side claims that enemies of Islam inserted it in there. And perhaps the scholars didn't really think super hard about it. Or that the pagans made up the whole thing at the time, basically running a polytheist propaganda campaign. Perhaps they made up the story at the time because they were embarrassed to be so overcome by Muhammad's verses that they began to pray like Muslims. Then it just sort of weaved its way into the historical narrative. Now that's possible, but it's also much simpler to assume it made it into the early histories because it's true. And that brings us to the historical practice of believing very embarrassing things. Now, most historical writings from ancient times are never taken at face value. You have to read between the lines. Like reading a report from an ancient Roman army. They probably killed a tenth of the Germans that they said that they did. Caesar did not kill that many Gauls. You, know, you can ignore the things that make the author look great to a certain extent. But you also look for anything unflattering kind of woven into the text and something that is likely to be the most authentic as a result. At least this is a, the perspective of a certain historical technique.
Now, this episode, the Satanic Verses, from a certain point of view, was embarrassing to Muslims, and yet it was accepted by Muslim scholars. Why? Perhaps because they felt a duty to convey the truth. That would be the simplest explanation. Now, here's the case for it not being real. Let's go right at the downside to the embarrassment argument I just mentioned. The Muslims were not embarrassed by this until generations after Muhammad was gone. It made the first histories. I'm not sure this was embarrassing until the Muslims discovered systematic theology, and I think someone was drawing the Mary Muhammad parallel. It's entirely possible the Muslim collectors didn't give great scrutiny to the stories being included, and they didn't think anything of the satanic verses at first. There's a process to this. You collect all the primary sources, and after time, you consider the sources more carefully, and then you curate it and you comment on it. That's what they did with the Hadith, after all, in which the chain of transmission is given careful consideration and all stories graded on the likelihood that they are true. Tons of later Islamic scholars and historians have described the chain of transmission of this as weak, meaning this isn't, in their opinion, something that can be trusted. And speaking of the Hadith, it doesn't really mention this event. More on that in a minute. And it's not in the Quran either, which is largely a collection of sermons. And wouldn't this incident be a spectacular subject for a sermon? Also, a Quranic verse referenced in the story itself, according to Quranic scholarship, that happened a few years after this event was supposed to have taken place. So the timeline doesn't make sense, which just at any level makes it something that requires greater scrutiny. Now, my take on all of this, I can't really say for sure one way or the other, at least with great, great certainty. That's the thing about history. You just can't really be certain about anything, almost. Um, Napoleon said history is a set of lies agreed upon, and he's not too far off. Whether a person or a document is a reliable source is always less than 100%, almost always. But as many scholars have said, if this, if the satanic verses are a fabrication, why would someone make up this story? It's a good question, but it has a built-in problem that makes any conclusions drawn along these lines kind of unreliable. You're naturally assuming that the person who made it up is a rational person, or that we can understand that person and his circumstances. You know, we simply cannot think of the infinite possibilities for why someone would lie like this if indeed it is a lie, or why someone would not lie like this. So you can't say with certainty that this did or did not happen. I've seen people lie for no discernible reason. It doesn't mean they were telling the truth just because you can't figure out why they are lying. And the older I get, the more comfortable I am with certain levels of uncertainty. So instead of a yes or no here, it's usually better to apply percentages of likelihood. And when it comes to this extra verse, these satanic verses, I'd put it somewhere around 25% likely 
that parts of this actually happened. Not that it happened exactly as reported. That's way less likely. Single digits, probably. But I'd say about 25% likely that something like this, something resembling the original story, actually happened. I understand the arguments on both sides, but even those who believe this have to admit there are a few red flags. Like the Surah, which is supposed to be referring to God's correction being late in Meccan at the earliest. And that means it probably happened well after the event in question. Then there's the fact that nothing in the Hadith refers to this. The entire zillion story collection of Hadith. Like really? Nothing? Nothing at all. That doesn't prove the story false, but it should raise suspicion. Now, on that subject, actually, some people would argue that there are Hadiths that reference this, but I'm not super convinced. Now, here are a couple of Hadiths from al-Bukhari, and some say these refer to the extra verses, but others would say the reaction was from the actual canonical version of Surah 53. Really, I tend to believe the latter. There, there isn't any evidence that I've seen that this is rever referring to the extra verse, to the satanic verses. So the simplest interpretation is that this is simply referring to Surah 53. So just so you can hear this, um, here's a version of that Hadith that they're talking about. The prophet recited Surat and Najim and prostrated while reciting it. And all the people prostrated, and a man amongst the people took a handful of stones or earth and raised it to his face and said, This is sufficient for me. Later on, I saw him killed as a non-believer. Now, I think the point there is that he's saying, Hey, what's, you know, what's here? What's corporeal? What's earthly? That's good enough for me. That's what he was saying, um, as opposed to Muhammad's invisible God. Um, and here's another one. The prophet prostrated while reciting on Najm, and with him prostrated the Muslims, the pagans, the jinns, and all human beings. Now, again, the idea that this refers to the extra verses as opposed to just Surah 53, that seems pretty weak. After all, would the Muslims and the jinns and all humans prostrate due to something that was unholy? That makes no sense. Yes, maybe Muhammad prostrated not knowing what he had done, and maybe the pagans joined him. But basically saying the whole world, the whole universe bowed down with them, I, I don't buy it. It's just not likely. That's only something that happens that is divinely inspired. And the satanic verses are the opposite of that. And then there's this idea that this is from the original story where it says that the Muslims in Abyssinia heard about all of this and they came back. Now, I'm not saying that's impossible, that it didn't happen, but it just seems extremely unlikely. You know, they were sent to Abyssinia by Muhammad. They were in a safe place. So if they were there, wouldn't they wait for word from Muhammad or at least someone important? What kind of asylum seeker goes back into a potential deadly situation based on a rumor? That would be epically stupid. You know, I just don't see it. Now, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. 
yeah, it very well might have happened. I just see it as highly unlikely. So based on the totality of all the evidence, um, my best guess here, um, which is hardly authoritative, but this is just my best guess based on what I've seen. I think this is an apocryphal story that the early sources liked, the satanic verses. That is, it's an apocryphal story that came from the early sources, but eventually it got around to more systematic religious thinkers. So at that point, it was discarded for either theological reasons or because it just wasn't a reliable enough account to build into the religion. Christians did the exact same thing with the Gospels. You can think of the Satanic verses like the Apocryphal Gospels almost. This is apocryphal Islamic history. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. So, <laughs> given the uncertainty, why bother devoting so much time to it? Three reasons. The first reason. This is a subject that Islamic writers and people writing about Islam tend to avoid. And that makes it difficult to find honest information on the subject. Touchy subjects like this really require original thought and the ability to sift through the mountains of BS from people who aren't super interested in the actual truth. Uh, that was actually one of the reasons I started this podcast. Because when it comes to Islam, for people who simply want to learn about the religion, everything is either curated Muslim piety, or on the other hand, Islamophobic nonsense from people with a clear hatred of all things Islam. Now, for those who are trying to get some honest information, none of those things is super helpful. And the internet sources regarding this event follow that exact same pattern. So I figured I'd put something useful out there. And the second reason, from a story perspective, which is what history is, it's a story. This really highlights the character traits of Muhammad from a literary perspective, that is. You know, regardless of whether any of this is actually true, it is the perfect story to exemplify Muhammad's situation, longing for peace and acceptance, but hemmed in by his mission from God. It's like his teary speech to his uncle, where he says, My uncle, by God, if they were to place the sun in my right hand and the moon in my left hand and tell me I had to abandon this ministry, I would still not stop until God made it victorious or I'd die preaching to my last breath. And then the third reason. This story is a perfect transition to the next chapter in Islamic history. This is the last overture for peace. In World War II terms, this is the Munich Conference. Soon will become the invasion of Poland and then the Phony War. And in the Islamic story, the equivalent of the Phony War is called the Boycott, which is where we'll pick up in the Islamic story next month. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.
Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.